Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. One night in Rome, about AD 404, the fabulously rich 20-year-old heiress Melania and her 24-year-old husband Pinianus both had the same dream. We saw ourselves, both of us, passing through a very narrow place in a wall, Melania would later account. We were totally discomposed in the narrowness, so that all remained was to give up our souls. When we came through that pain with great suffering, we found abundant great relief and ineffable joy. God manifested this to us, comforting our faintness of spirit, so that we might be brave concerning the future repose that we would receive after such suffering. Pete, uh, welcome to your own podcast. Oh, it's great to be here and uh, be here with you, Susanna, talking about money, the theme of our new issue of Plow and of our next series of podcasts. And uh, thanks for just reading from, uh, from Melania, not Melania Trump, but Melania in Rome, uh, you know, end of the Roman Empire. That amazing dream she has of passing through this cramped space with great pain and then coming to ineffable joy, which sounds uh, like a good place to land. We will get back to what that dream led her and her husband to do. I do think we need to let our listeners know. So what it led them to do was to give up all their money, their absolutely fabulous wealth, uh, just immense uh, fortune. Uh, of a level that the historian Peter Brown says would not be amassed again until the Industrial Revolution. So they had this dream, they gave up all their money, and we're going to talk about them soon. But that leads us into this theme of money and what is money for? That is the question. And that is what we want to talk about today, dear listeners. So <clears throat> we've done an issue on money. Uh, Pete, why did we do this issue? What were we thinking? Well, there's a bunch of things that have been happening in the last few months and years that we've been noticing. And to use a bit of shorthand, uh, you could say, call it the collapse of neoliberalism, the collapse of this consensus that the market is going to be the solution uh, to everything that was pretty dominant, both on the uh, left, sort of the sort of center left of President Clinton, of Tony Blair, and, you know, their analogs all around the world, and also on the right, uh, which ha has typically been identified as the pro-business party. Y you're seeing this interesting change in a kind of consensus that has been around since at least the 1970s. But of course, more fundamentally, because money is just one of those big issues in human life, Karl Marx calls it uh, the god among commodities. There's something divine about money and its power over us, and it seemed like a really interesting and uh, relevant to everyone topic to dive into a bit. You mentioned the critique of neoliberalism, the growing sort of critique of neoliberalism or even collapse of neoliberalism. What are we talking about here? Well, let me borrow from an article uh, that Eric Leavitt's wrote in New York Magazine uh, just a couple of weeks ago, where uh, the headline is, the Biden administration just declared the death of neoliberalism. An advisor to the Biden administration just gave a speech earlier this year in Washington where he announced 
a new Washington consensus replacing the old Washington consensus, which he sort of identified with neoliberalism without using the word. Uh, and he f gives the definition of three flawed assumptions in this old neoliberal model. One is that markets always allocate capital productively and efficiently. So trust the markets. Another flawed assumption is that all growth is good growth. And the third is that economic integration would make nations more responsible and open and make the global order more peaceful and cooperative. And I guess it's plain to see, uh, looking around the world, conflict with China, the war in Ukraine, all kinds of conflicts that we don't talk about as much elsewhere in the world, uh, the global order is not growing more peaceful and cooperative as, uh, you know, prosperity increases as kind of was the dream in the 90s. And you're seeing this kind of critique or this this noticing of uh, a collapsing consensus on both left and right. So the National Conservatism Movement, um, which has various conferences uh, around the world and other sort of movements on the right have, including, you know, people like Tucker Carlson and, um, you know, even to a, hypothetically, um, people like Josh Hawley have called into question things that, you know, under the kind of Reaganite vision of uh, the Republican Party would have been un totally unthinkable to question. So the idea that, um, you know, free markets actually might not be good for the American national community, the idea that free markets might actually be destructive of the kinds of values that, uh, that Republicans otherwise at least hypothetically hold um, in terms of sort of promoting strong families. Um, the idea that free markets actually might be a destructive force on society, on individual lives, and that people maybe need to be protected from markets rather than um, markets being set free as this kind of semi-magical force to um, help raise up people uh, out of poverty, out of um, out of oppression, etc. And we should say markets have done some wonderful things in terms of sort of raising the standard of living, um, at least to a certain degree, um, across the world. So we are not entirely, we're not denying that. However, there is a kind of generalized sense that the promise of markets as the thing and the promise essentially of even money and prosperity as the things that will make your life make sense um, are increasingly, maybe even in the face of prosperity and especially prosperity that is not widely spread across society. Um, it seems like there've been a lot of promises made having to do with markets and money that we are finding are not being kept. So that's the wider sort of situation, kind of the state of the public discussion that was kind of influenced us when we started to think about money. But of course, you know, being Plow, uh, we want to dive a little bit more deeper into what money really is and also what role it plays in our lives personally, uh, not just s sort of talk macroeconomic theory um, or policy, although we're going to do some of that in upcoming interviews. Um, in this series. And there's two kind of things that crystallized 
um, to me why it's important to talk about this right now. One was the collapse of the cryptocurrency bubble earlier this year. Uh, we are now reading about uh, preparations for the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, formerly head of FTX, the major cryptocurrency exchange. And, you know, there's obviously all kinds of things about that story that are specific to crypto, but one part of it is, that was interesting to me, um, is it kind of highlighted the artificiality of money, that money, although it has a power of life and death uh, in a very real way, especially for poor people, um, it is also something that can just melt down so fast, so dramatically, and can be manipulated so much. Um, and in the case of FTX, while things are going good, can appear to be so well-intentioned and so high-minded uh, in FTX's case because they were identified with effective altruism and with a whole bunch of projects around the world that were supposedly making the world a better place. So that was one story, right? Uh, moral, you know, money is artificial. Um, another story that was occupying us as we put this issue together and as we thought about this series of podcasts was a really troubling uh, survey that uh, the Wall Street Journal and uh, NORC at the University of Chicago did uh, earlier this year. It actually came out in March, and uh, it was marketed as sort of the American Values Survey. And they looked at how Americans, and apologies to our non-American listeners, but I imagine that similar is happening elsewhere, um, over the last 25 years have changed their core values. They asked a bunch of questions about what things are very important to you. And it was very noticeable which things went down and which things went up. So which things went down? Uh, community involvement 25 years ago was very important to 47% of people. Now, 27%. Having children from 59% to 30%, patriotism from 70% to 38%, and religion from 62% to 39%. Now what went up? You got it, money. That went up from being import, very important to 31% of people to 43%. And of course, you know, we, we can't prove causation and, and you can, speculate on the reasons for these changes. It is very striking though, that to me, uh, just big picture here, that as things like community involvement, patriotism, religion, having children, all these sort of human relationship, community-ish things have become less important to people, uh, money goes up. And that's kind of jives with a insight in the New Testament that Money is something not to trust. Uh, don't serve God and mammon, uh, is what Jesus said, and we'll get into that. Um, that's also what Pinyanis and Melania uh, story, again, kind of teasing that, um, kind of helps illustrate. You know, one other, one other study that I've 
had a long time interest in um, is the so-called Grant study that Harvard University's done since the 1930s. It's sort of a longitudinal study looking at how a select group of 238 Harvard undergraduates uh, that they picked way back then um, and kind of tracked them throughout their lives, how they did. And uh, one of the big, you know, takeaways from that study, according to uh, George Valent, the man who sort of oversaw the study for over th three uh, decades, is that relationships are what make a successful and happy life. Uh, and money is not so important. So again, um, these are some of the things that made us want to do this issue and made us want to look very specifically at the place of money in Christianity. Right. So one of the things that I think is really helpful in sort of starting out in this slightly sociological or phenomenological mode, a lot of Christianity has perhaps not as much trouble with money as it really ought to. Um, but the parts of Christianity that do kind of reflect the New Testament's uh, sort of just perception of money as a, uh, as a some, some somewhat sinister force. Um, the those kinds of those sorts of Christianity can start to can make it seem as though um, what you need to do what you need to do is be miserable or be ascetic, and caring about money is something that you know is a sort of happy thing to do and you know will help would ideally help you thrive, but we are beyond thriving. We don't really need to thrive because we have um, because we have Jesus, and that is actually not at all. Um, what either the sociological or the theological picture um, is. You actually do need enough money to survive. Um, but after you have a kind of like survive base, sort of enough to live on, um, money can crowd out. Money can operate as a kind of like, um, can just shoulder out the things that actually do make you happy and the things that actually do help you to thrive as a human being truly. Um, and phenomenologically, you will experience this. If you give your life to making a lot of money, um, you will probably find that you are not as effective at giving your life to um, the kingdom of God, to your friends, to your family, to, um, to your neighbors, um, to making beautiful things in the world. If, and, and you will find that you are fundamentally less happy and less yourself and less human. And that is what the New Testament describes. It's exactly what the New Testament describes. Um, so obviously there is a moralistic should here, yet you should not worship mammon. Um, there's also a just phenomenological, if you do this, you're going to have a worse life. And you'll probably potentially have a worse afterlife. Um, but that this this is not something that is alien to human experience. This matches human experience. It did surprise me about this Washington Journal uh, study because my impression would have been that especially younger generations um, born since the 2008, you know, Great Recession, uh, we've seen the rise of, you know, Bernie Sanders in 2016, a bit of a socialist moment back then. Uh, you read plenty of studies about how younger workers want fulfillment from their jobs, not income. 
And yet, uh, that hasn't seemed to go along with, you know, a, a, a greater skepticism about the value of money, clearly. Has that struck you, Susanna? Uh, you know, and I, I don't know, we need, don't need to solve that right now. I'm just kind of flagging it that there is, and, and Naomi Klein actually talks about this, there is actually, uh, right from the beginning of modern capitalism, there has been something new agey about capitalism. There has been a bit of a spiritual aura to it. Um, that's why, you know, Fortune 500 companies are kind of big into new agey wellness stuff. Um, and so just because you have a spiritual vibe, uh, maybe even particularly if you do have a bit of a spiritual vibe, uh, that is not uh, the opposite of mammon, right? In fact, it can be playing into it. Yeah, actually, we're going to have an interview later on in this series with Tara Isabella Burton, who's just come out with a book called Self-Made, which includes a fantastic chapter on Gilded Age capitalism and sort of self, the, the, the new thought movement and the way that um, certain kinds of spiritual language, even some Christian language, was appropriated to um, make money seem like almost a sacrament. Um, making money as a kind of like expression of human will, of the commanding of, of the powers of the universe in a kind of impersonal sort of um, way. And yeah, I, I absolutely think that there's, there's no contradiction between spirituality and money making. It's just a question of what spirit. Um, and I, I, yeah, I was surprised by the numbers in the, in the Wall Street Journal study. Because like you, I'd kind of thought that, you know, you also have all these studies about how people are incredibly lonely and they're not, they, they don't have human connection. Right. I believe this Surgeon General just uh, recently, you know, gave a speech about how one out of two Americans report feeling loneliness, which is not the sign of a healthy society. Yeah. And so, I mean, I just, I, I do wonder whether like it one of the ways to put these two things together which i don't know if it's true or not and i kind of do suspect the the wall street journal numbers a little bit because they seem so bizarre to me um but one of the things the ways to put this together is that people have dialed down their because people have dialed down the commitment to the sort of good things you know the thing the having children and and patriotism and um community involvement patriotism obviously can go badly. Of course, everything can go badly, whatever. Um, people have dialed down their commitment to those good things and their desire for those good things to a much greater degree than they've dialed up um, their desire for money. So the uptick in money is only about half, from what I can tell, of the downtick in desire for other things. And I wonder whether it might be the case that like people are lonely because they don't desire or value those things that actually get you th through low that that are counters to loneliness but they don't really understand that those things are counters to loneliness so all they have is the experience of loneliness and they don't really understand that you know community involvement or having children might be a counter to loneliness like that might be a, a solution um 
So, I mean, that's one way of reading this all. It, it just seems, it, it, it is very puzzling. Yeah, and I was surprised. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of our conversation with Peter after the break. So maybe that takes us back to where we began with uh, Melania, the heiress in Rome, uh, and her path to happiness, um, <laughs> which uh, is a deeply Christian story, a deeply strange story from a society in many ways very different than ours, and in some ways uh, very similar. I was absolutely fascinated and intrigued by this story, as you can tell, because it figures pretty prominently in the editorial I wrote for the issue. And uh, so hat tip to Peter Brown, whose wonderful book, Through the Eye of a Needle, uh, I drew on heavily, and which is just a great entry into this topic. Um, it's looking at, you know, Christianity's changing relation to, to money, uh, just as the Roman Empire was drawing to an end. Uh, but, you know, let's focus on this individual couple, not on the whole Roman Empire. So they are just incredibly rich. Uh, they have a palace on the Celian Hill in Rome. They have estates all over the Roman Empire, um, from North Africa to Gaul, Aquitaine, Spain, Britain, um, and of course, all over Sicily and Italy. Um, they, uh, Melania later tells her story to a monk called Gerontius. Um, this is toward the end of her life. And uh, there, you know, and it's the main source. It was actually only discovered in the 19th century, this autobiography, or well, biography, um, but a lot of it's in her own voice. And uh, just this fascinating look into uh, somebody who made some extremely radical decisions. So uh, her husband, Pinianus, they, they were both, you know, heirs to huge fortunes. They were both in the senatorial class of Rome. Uh, Pinianus's cash income alone was 120,000 gold solidi a year. Uh, realize people can't really figure out what that is, but uh, as best I can tell, that's the equivalent of uh, the annual wage at that time for 30,000 kind of ordinary laborers. Uh, and that was just one spouse. Uh, when they decided after their dream to give all their money away, all their money away, uh, just clearing up uh, and selling their estates right around Rome, uh, they started off by freeing 8,000 slaves, and that wasn't all of them because a whole bunch of the rest of them actually revolted and refused to be manumitted because they felt they would have a more secure life if they stayed with the estate and negotiated their own sale um, at a cut rate to Melania's brother. Uh, kind of interesting digression there. Um, but suffice it to say, you know, these people belonged to the billionaire class of their day. They'd grown up Christian. Uh, but something about their wealth made it intolerable to them uh, to keep it. And uh, she mentions that great suffering, that great pain, the sense of going through this claustrophobic cleft of enormous pressure and then emerging 
on the other side uh, to that ineffable bliss, huge relief. Um, Peter Brown, the historian, he posits that that passage that they w went through, uh, if you look at the Christian preaching at that time, was almost definitely uh, a reference to a well-known saying of Jesus. Um, and that's in all three synoptic gospels. Um, a rich young man or a rich young ruler in Luke comes to Jesus and asks, uh, teacher, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus asks him, you know, do you know the commandments? And he kind of lists a version of the Ten Commandments, you know, don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet. Uh, the rich young man says, I've done all those since my youth. And Jesus said, one thing remains, sell all you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And uh, the man, young man becomes very sad because he has great wealth and walks away. And then Jesus says, uh, how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Um, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom. And so this passage through which uh, Pinyanis and Medellania felt themselves going uh, in Peter Brown's account is that impossible passage of the camel through the eye of the needle. And what did that involve? It involved, in their case, completely liquidating these enormous assets. And uh, there's reports of them right away sort of uh, authorizing agents all over the empire, uh, just, you know, they had no sensible way of giving away money back then. Just kind of handing gold coins, you know, 10,000 to this person and 20 to that person, uh, and just sending them on their way, you know, go to this region and give away money to the poor. Uh, an absolutely astonishing and exhilarating tale. But I want to get to the end. Uh, they both land up as paupers in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. Um, Pinianus, who earlier was apparently a bit of a bon vivant, um, really loved his uh, nice clothes, um, is known for wearing only a, a, a robe of woven straw. They're enrolled in the list of the city's poor, and they are extremely happy. Melania dies very happy, according to her biographer, uh, Gerontius, who describes uh, how she uh, tranquilly and placidly passed in gladness and rejoicing, surrounded by a community, surrounded by her sisters. Actually, she had, after Pinyanus died, she joined a monastery. She has bought not only treasure in heaven, uh, which we don't know, but Jesus promises, but she had bought uh, with her money, she'd exchanged it for a life very rich in relationships and community, uh, and we're talking about her still today. She absolutely left a legacy. Uh, she's a saint in both the Eastern and uh, Western Catholic churches. Um, and so her story seemed to me to be kind of like an answer to this Wall Street Journal study. <laughs> uh, she did 
the exact opposite of striving for money and giving up on relationships. She did the other thing. Um, and, and there is, of course, Jesus promises that, right? In the Gospels, he says, whoever, you know, leaves fields and homes and possessions um, shall receive in this life a hundredfold, you know, and then, then comes the promise of what happens in the afterlife, which is even better. But even in this life, you receive a hundredfold back, uh, which was definitely, you know, the case for these two young people uh, making this really, really tough decision that their families hated. And that was actually politically destabilizing in Rome because it was the, the amount of wealth was so huge. They were like too big to fail. And the uh, Roman Senate actually attempted to step in and preemptively confiscate their estates um, to prevent them from giving them away. Because uh, too many freed slaves, uh, this is what Peter Brown speculates, too many freed slaves were kind of roaming around Rome um, and the other senators didn't like that. Yeah, I think that um, Peniana's and Melania's story, as well as kind of other similar stories and just the general tenor of the New Testament, including that specific passage from our Lord that you mentioned, Peter, really kind of do point to something that I really want to hammer a lot in, in this series of podcasts. And I think we've pretty much um, covered pretty extensively in the issue, which is that this is not, th this is a question of kingdom building. And this is a question of what you do with the energies of your life. Um, and it's the teaching against money is not fundamentally a joyless or a um, sort of ascetic or um, tamped down teaching. Your, your response to this should be exhilaration. Um, it's exhilarating to be able to live like this. It's exhilarating to be able to actually store your money where it will live, store your wealth and your, and your energy where it will live forever, as opposed to where it's going to just eventually, you know, die away after, you know, well, you're going to die, but like, no matter what you do, um, you know, your bank account is going to eventually sort of either just sit there and what, what's the point of that, or it'll get, you know, chipped away at by taxes or whatever. But like, what, you can do with your life and your energy that will last and that will give you actual community in this life and and will you know be things be something that will stay forever in the next life is the kind of generous magnanimous magnificent um life of giving and of building um something other than a big bank account for yourself something that is in fact the kingdom of God. So that that's the decision. That's the sort of either or. Um, are you going to build something that is just for you or are you going to build something that is with others for the kingdom? And that decision that you're talking about, Susanna, is obviously not something that, you know, you or I came up with. This is directly from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, mammon being the the god of wealth, um, you will either serve one uh, or and hate the other, or the other way around, right? Um, that kind of either or teaching about money uh, is kind of baked solidly in one of the most climactic passages of the New Testament. But 
having said that, I totally agree with that. Um, and that's one of the big reasons we wanted to do this issue on money. I'm going to be the devil's advocate now because that is not the normal view of what Christianity teaches about money. In fact, there's a very famous book by Max Weber, the German sociologist, um, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, right? And we, te we tend to think of Christianity as being one of the forces of the establishment um, of property, of law and order, of um, private property rights, of uh, actually a Christian spirit of hard work and orderliness and enterprise um, being integral to the success of capitalism in the modern age. Uh, and you just said something about a teaching against money, uh, which sounds like the opposite of that. And uh, is there a Christian teaching against money? Uh, what are we missing here? Or what happened in Christianity to get us to where, uh, you know, as, for instance, uh, Eugene McCarrer, uh, professor at Villanova, who's we're going to interview in an upcoming uh, episode in the series, writes in The Enchantments of Mammon, Christianity actually became the, the handmaiden of uh, the capitalist system, and then quite specifically of neoliberalism in the last couple of decades. So what's going on? Uh, which one is it? <laughs> Great question. Well, I mean, one should kind of peg the fact that there are, in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere, there, there is a sort of counter signal to a certain degree, even in the text of the Bible, which perhaps we will get into at some point. Um, but the overwhelming kind of general tenor um, of the New Testament is this sort of fairly radical teaching about money. And so how did it, how did we get from Penianus and Melania understanding that if they wanted to seriously follow Jesus and seriously be Christian, this, you know, giving up all of their money is something that, you know, would be a definite sort of good step to, um, I don't know, uh, the sort of sensible bourgeois um, and or belief that, you know, as, as Weber at least claimed, belief that um, wealth was a kind of sign of God's blessing in and, and election and that that was a fairly uncomplicated thing. Um, let's talk about Augustine of Hippo. Ah, <laughs> a friend of Pinianus and Melania, a, by a the friend, way, and literal, one of the recipients yeah. of their largesse. Yeah, and friend of the pod, I would say. Um, yeah, he's definitely a friend of the pod. Yeah. Um, so w this is not an anti-Augustine episode. No, it's not. Uh, anyone who's worried? But... I think it's one of these places where Augustine plays a complex role. So if you look at the teaching of the anti-Nicene anti church fathers, so before the Council of Nicaea, um, of the first few centuries when Christianity is still a persecuted religion, the themes that are emphasized by people like Basil of Caesarea, John Chrysostom. Uh, not all of these are anti-Nicene, of course. Um, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, uh, in the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas. 
they pick up very strongly on a theme in the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels and also throughout the rest of the New Testament that I would characterize as pretty directly anti-wealth. Um, there's, in addition to some of the passages we've already talked about, there's the famous parable of Dives and Lazarus that Jesus tells. Uh, Dives is the rich man who feasts daily. At his gate lies Lazarus, the poor man, covered in sores. The dogs lick his sores. Um, they both die. And Lazarus is brought by the angels to Abraham's bosom, to a place of blessedness. And the rich man finds himself in hell. And he begs for a drink of water from the flames. And uh, the patriarch Abraham answers him quite coldly. Uh, you had good things in your life, and uh, Lazarus had bad things, and now it's the other way around. And this parable uh, just resounded through the early Christian uh, preaching. Um, if anybody wants to kind of look at how that happened, there's a great study uh, put together by a priest called Charles Avila, um, Ownership, Early Christian Teaching. It was published by Orvis back in the 80s. Uh, but it's just a great sort of source book. A and it's pretty overwhelming how strong the teaching on wealth was. Um, the warnings to rich Christians uh, were, if anything, completely over the top. Uh, and it was, interestingly enough, this parable of Dives and Lazarus that uh, inspired the first super-rich Christian uh, that we know of who gave away all his wealth, a man called Paulinus of, of Nola. Um, he gave away all his wealth, which was, if anything, even bigger than Pinianus and Melanius, um, a few years before they did. So he was also a friend of Augustine, which is where we started, uh, and Augustine welcomed this. Augustine embraced the same message himself. So Augustine, when he comes to Hippo after his conversion, uh, comes back from Italy where he's been studying under Ambrose of Milan, another of these thundering um, anti-wealth preachers. I'm going to say it that way. Um, apologies to, you know, everyone who wants more nuance. Um Augustine, too, renounces all his wealth, gives everything away, and he founds a community. Uh, actually, the first Augustine, Augustinian monastery. He writes precepts for them, which is today the rule of St. Augustine, used by many religious orders like the Dominicans. And he refers, in that role, one of the first things, apart from love each other, is have no private possessions, absolutely no private property, share everything in common, um, take care of each other from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Uh, that line that sounds so Marxist, because it is Marxist, but really comes from the early church in Acts 2 and 4, where the church on the day it's of birth, at the first Pentecost, uh, the believers famously uh, were of one heart and one soul and had everything in common and laid their possessions at the feet of the apostles. So Augustine believed this stuff, and he was very happy when Pinianus and Melania did what they did, 
same with Paulinus of Nola, uh, and he preached plenty of sermons on these topics as well. However, um, he was in an interesting point in time when it was a couple generations after Christianity had been legalized, and more and more wealthy Christians were showing up in church, and he was the bishop. He was not only the leader of this Acts 2 and 4, you know, commune, um, Christian commune, he was also the bishop of a pretty diverse congregation. And uh, I don't know how deeply into the weeds we want to get here, but, you know, partly out of a fear of the kind of legalistic rigorism that he associated with heresy. Mm -hmm. Specifically with Pelagianism. Mm -hmm. Specifically with Pelagianism. He modified his teaching on wealth and um, kind of laid the groundwork for some later developments in Christianity that, as an Anabaptist, I think were bad. But we can't blame Augustine. He couldn't have foreseen how his words, you know, would be appropriated in later centuries. But he kind of did two things. Uh, one was he defined away the hard sayings of Jesus on wealth uh, as councils of perfection. So uh, evangelical councils, they're called in sort of contemporary Roman Catholic theology. Uh, there was a sense in which over time, whatever Augustine himself precisely meant by that, um, Jesus sayings, for instance, in Luke 14, where he tells sort of all his disciples, you know, uh, if you hang on to any of your possessions, you can't follow me. Uh, that was reinterpreted as being just for, the, for a spiritual elite with a special calling, and you're sort of rank-and-file Christians. You know, don't worry about that. Um, don't commit adultery. You know, be like the rich young man. Don't do the really bad sins. But that second step of selling all your possessions and giving to the poor and following me, that's just for uh, what would later become monastics or people with a special religious vocation. And the other thing that Augustine kind of pioneered, and this is drawing from Peter Brown's book where he gets into this much more precisely, um, so I'm just generalizing here. Uh, but Augustine kind of redefined wealth and the distribution of wealth and the any distribution, the unequal distribution of wealth as providential. So just like some people are born, you know, with athletic ability or smarts um, or beauty. Uh, so some people are born with wealth and others are not. And that's one of those gifts of God that you should use for his glory, not selfishly. Absolutely not. Um, and you should use it, according to Augustine, with generous self-sacrificial almsgiving. So it's not like you can just sit on your wealth, but it's kind of okay that you have your wealth and somebody else doesn't because that's providential, that's God's mysterious will that some should be rich and others poor. That was kind of new in Christianity, and that was Augustine reacting to a pretty complex moment and trying to minister to a very diverse, not fully... Uh, discipled congregation in North Africa 
you know, in the fifth century. So what, what happens then is to me what's interesting, right? You can easily see how those two ideas, that Jesus's hard sayings, his economic radicalism are only for kind of special people. And this idea that inequality of wealth is somehow comes from God's hand how over the centuries that would become a very comfortable message for uh, those who are wealthy. Yeah. Uh, I do think we should point out, though, that it's gotten worse. Because if, okay, so the idea of providential distribution of, um, of wealth and such that you don't really need to question it, that it's such that you can sort of just say, well, this is, this is where God has put me and... Um, and I don't need to kind of like maybe ask where, what I might owe in terms of uh, actually changing things. Um, that's at least not as bad, in my view at least, as the idea of meritocracy. And the change in the notion of wealth when it went from something that you just kind of received um, and inherited to something that you earned and thus deserved. That seems to me to be one step kind of darker in a way. Yeah, it sure is. And that's, I mean, we're not going to be able to cover this whole history here. I, I would strongly recommend on this um, Eugene McCarroll's book, The Enchantments of Mammon, that we will drop a link to. But I think just, you know, TLDR, the Protestant Reformation. We Protestants uh, have something to answer for here. Because in Catholic social teaching to this day, the idea of common ownership survives. Uh, you know, uh, there's this mouthful term, universal destination of goods, um, that basically the goods of this world are made for the, the common good and that private ownership to the extent it exists is kind of conditional on contributing to that common good. That survives in Catholic teaching. Uh, it's a pretty watered down form of what an Ambrose or even an Augustine would have taught, but it's still there. The Protestant Reformation is where this idea that God prospers his own um, really takes off. And, and we probably just need to own that. Yeah, I mean, well, also I, I do have to say as the one magisterial Protestant involved in, well, I guess joyous as well. Anyway, um, not all Protestants, not all magisterial Protestants, not entirely. Nevertheless, it, it wasn't great. No, 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 no. Uh, not all anybody, right? Um, however, there's a reason that Max Weber identified Protestantism with the spirit of capitalism. And, um, you know, we're not going to rehash that set of arguments or their validity either. But if you focus on the United States of America, right? And McCarrer goes over this history in his books, there is, uh, looking at the various Protestant sects and sort of post-Protestant sects, like the Mormons, um, there is absolutely a sort of development toward what today you see uh, most dramatically with the prosperity gospel, right? The televangelists promising earthly blessings uh, to God's elect. And uh, th th there's 
a bunch of ways, you know, in which the Protestant move um, enabled that, even if not deliberately. I, I feel like I want to end as we kind of draw to a close on this episode. And there's so much more and we're not, we don't even have time to talk about like the whole issue, which we maybe should have, but, um, but there are a lot of fantastic pieces in this issue that look at this from all different kinds of angles. The one thing I do really think we need to really keep at the front of our minds is that there's a kind of twofold movement in Melania and Penianus's life and in the teaching of Christ and in the description of the early church that we have in Acts 2 and 4 where it's not just you give up your money. It's you give up your money, you lay your wealth at the feet of the apostles, and you enter into, and in many cases, start a community. So it's not just, it's not a, primarily a negative thing. It's primarily you're giving up your money or you're doing something different with your money in order to enable you to live a new kind of life. And primarily, the way that they would have thought of this is throwing your lot in with a new city or a new family. So the old city and the old family, which you know you, you do still have loyalty to, your family is still your family, um, but at the same time, what you primarily are now is a member of a new gens, a new uh, natio, a new, a new nation, a new kingdom, a, a new a royal family, priesthood. a royal priesthood. Uh, and this is the royal family of God. And in order to enter into this royal family of God, which is living together in one way or another on earth, um, in various kinds of Christian communities, um, and there are ways to do Christian community that are less whole hog than the Bruderhof, um, and I think that we should be thinking about how to do those. But in one way or another, you're living on earth with your new, with this new royal family. And your attitude towards kind of your old money is a reflection of your attitude primarily towards this treasure, this pearl of great price, this treasure hidden in a field, this new status as a royal son or daughter of God in, with your brothers and sisters. And you cannot understand any anything about the teaching on money without understanding that. In Jesus' words, make friends for yourself with the mammon of unrighteousness. So it has a use. And that's what Pinionatus <laughs> and Melania found in a countless Christians and non-Christians have found throughout the ages. Um, what is money for, I guess, you know, just to tease our answer here, it's for reckless giving for the sake of that new family. And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to the series of episodes, uh, Susanna, where we're going to look at all different kinds of aspects of this. Yep. With, with a bunch of great guests. Yep. So now, thank you guys for listening and um, brace yourselves gonna be a wild ride and uh please write us you know follow us on twitter whatever we would love to hear from you and um we are excited to be on this ride together <laughs> bye guys thanks for listening be sure to subscribe on itunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends for a lot more content like this check out plow.com for the digital magazine you can also subscribe $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com membership to learn more. 
On our next episode, I'll be talking with Eugene McCarraher about Mammon and its enchantments.